0: how do I follow that? How do I get stuck up here to follow that? Incredible. Well, guys, how's everybody doing this morning? You guys good? Awesome. Well, hey, it is great to be uh, with you this morning. Um, If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Derek. I'm actually the worship pastor here at Lake Hill. So this is a little bit of a different perspective Uh, Slightly more terrifying uh, perspective than I'm used to being on a Sunday morning, but I'm excited to dive into where we are going today as we are in the story of Abraham. We're in this series called Founding Father that is following the life, following the story of Abraham, who we have seen is the patriarch or what we'd say founding father of our faith. And we're going to dive into his story uh, in just a minute. Um, But first, I want to talk about uh, superheroes for a second, if I can. I'm sure you noticed I'm repping the Superman shirt today, and there's a reason for this. We're going to go somewhere with this. Hopefully, this will be a reminder throughout the rest of the messages to where we are going as well. And I want you to think about who your favorite superhero is of all time. I know we got a lot of kids in the room. Maybe you got some superheroes as well, but think about who your favorite superhero is. I want you to think about why they are your favorite. Favorite superhero, why they're your favorite, and there's a lot of different directions that we could go with this. There's a lot of superheroes out there, a lot of different categories, and today I want to look at a very specific but small group of superheroes that are going to launch us in to where we're going today. You can see it up here on the screen. This is the category that I want to talk about, and you can already start to think about uh, what is the common thread between maybe these four superheroes that are up here. Uh, There's also a few others that would fit this category, but I'm gonna give you the answer right here. These four characters are what are known as vigilante superheroes. Vigilante superheroes, I'm sure you're familiar with that word, you probably even know what it means, but here's what a vigilante is. A vigilante is somebody who works outside of the law, uh, oftentimes even running from the law themselves. They take matters into their own hands to bring a criminal to justice. And oftentimes these superheroes uh, have got a personal story, they've got some sort of personal injustice or maybe a loss that has happened to them that kind of launches them into this vigilante role where they take matters into their own hands. And at the end of the day, what they're doing is they are not trusting the authorities, right, the police to do their job. They are taking matters into their own hands to accomplish the mission or the purpose. And vigilantes are not strictly related to superheroes. I think another great example is a guy, Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. Anybody seen the movie Taken before, right? His his daughter gets taken from him and he does not trust the police. So he takes matters into his own hands and he uh, goes to town on some bad guys. And here's the reason why I love this category of superheroes or vigilantes. Here's why we love this category. It's because we can see ourselves in the story. We can insert ourselves into the story. And let's take the Liam Neeson example of Taken for a moment, because I want to talk to to the dudes for a second, especially if you're a dad. If you are a dad and you've seen this movie Taken, I can almost with 100% certainty guarantee you that we all asked the same question. And that question is, what would I do if that was me? Right? Anybody ask that question as they're watching the movie, what would I do if I was in his scenario and that happened to me? And this is why we love this category of vigilantes because all throughout the rest of the movie, all throughout the rest of the story, we are comparing what we would do in that scenario to what the hero is doing. And we are gonna have that same opportunity today as we look at the story of Abraham for us to insert ourselves into his story. And I'll say this as well, a lot of this this morning is gonna feel like we are watching a movie. Hopefully, we are gonna be following the story of Abraham so close that it feels like you are there and you have the opportunity to say, what would I do in his situation if I was him. And so that's where we're gonna be going today. Uh, We're gonna be jumping into Genesis chapter 16. And here's the deal, here's the bottom line for today. If you don't get anything else out of what we're talking about today, here it is. The, The lesson for today is don't be a vigilante. Don't be a vigilante. And here's why. Because while being a vigilante is great for movies, it's great for the stories of superheroes and comics, We're going to see in Abraham's story today that it is not great when it comes to how we approach our relationship with God. And we're going to see this in Genesis chapter 16. But before we jump in, I actually have another question for you. And this will be kind of exciting because the way that you answer this question, and we're going to ask for participation, the way you answer this question is going to determine how I start this story. So this is kind of like a pick-your-own-adventure book. And here's the question. Let's say that you are watching a series of movies or or a movie series that maybe has three movies in it. It can be whatever genre, it can be superhero, it can be action, it can be comedy, doesn't matter. How many of you would say that you would be able to watch movie number two in the series without having seen movie number one first? How many people, where are all the weird people at that can watch movie number two? We've got a couple, all right, everybody take note, you're sitting next to, right? I expected this to be the opposite, right? Now, hands up for everybody who's got to watch, if you're going to watch a series, you've got to see movie one first, right? Who is this? This is the majority of us. And this is why this is important for us today. Because where we pick up the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 16 essentially is movie number two of his story. And in order to fully understand movie number two, we have to at least see the bullet points of what happens in story number one, which is Genesis chapter 12 through 15. We've seen some of this. So I just wanna refresh us real quick so we can get up to speed because this is gonna be super important for where we go today. Let's go ahead and put, yeah, we got the slide up here. Um, this is what's happening essentially in movie one of the story. Now, you can take a picture of this. Or you can you know, write these down. You can look these up on your own time because we don't have time to get into it today. But these are all of the major examples that Abraham has opportunities that Abram has to trust God or to trust himself. And here's the deal with Abraham. Uh, Many of us know, and we talked about this in week one, that Abraham's really known for one thing, right? He is known for faith. And not just our faith as Christians, not just faith when it comes to organized religion, but he is known for having faith himself. That's what we know him from the Bible for. And yet what we see even on this slide is that like many of us, Abraham actually really struggled with faith. And he goes through multiple seasons of trusting God and then doubting God. We saw that in the difference between week one and week two of this series. And that should do a couple of things for us. It should give us encouragement that the father of our faith actually struggled with this, right, because many of us do, all of us do as well. But it also should help spur us on to choose to trust God. And again, this is what we're gonna see. So. At the very beginning of chapter 12, uh, this is what we saw in week one. God comes to Abram with a promise and he says, I want you to leave your land, leave your family, go to a land I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna multiply your descendants. You're gonna have a son and things are gonna go really well for you. That was the big promise of the story of Abraham and the Bible says that he trusted God in Genesis 12. And yet then what we see at the end of chapter 12 is we've got a couple opportunities and stories of Abram taking matters into his own hands, trusting himself in Egypt, and you can go read about that. Uh, But then also in chapter 13, and we saw this last week, Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham has this opportunity to divide up this piece of property between him and his nephew Lot. He lets Lot choose first, which is essentially him trusting God that the right decision will be made. So we've got him going back and forth between faith unbelief, faith, unbelief, and then in chapter 15, which is right before we start our story, we actually see an example of both. One of the most uh, well-known verses when it comes to Abraham's story is found in verse 6, where it said that Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he believes this promise that God gives him, and yet two verses later in verse 8, it says that Abram doubts and questions God, and he says, how do I know that you're gonna come through on your promise. In other words, how do I know God that I can trust you? Anybody ever asked that question before? God, how do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that your word is true? How do I know that you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do? This is where Abram is at. And so here we can see our father of faith goes back and forth between whether he's gonna trust God or trust himself. And again, it's very important for where we're going to pick up today because in Genesis chapter 16, he is going to have another example or opportunity of how to trust God. And this is where you need to insert yourself into the movie, into the story, and ask the question, what would you do if this were you? Now, at this point in the story, it has been 10 years since God gave Abram, the promise. And side note, Abram, Abraham, they're the same guy. His name has not been changed yet. We're gonna see that later in the story. But it's been 10 years since God comes to Abram in chapter 12 and says, I'm gonna give you a son, I'm gonna multiply your descendants. And yet, there's one problem. Abram doesn't have any kids. Abram and his wife, Sarai, uh, God changes her name later as well to Sarah but they don't have any kids right now. And this is an even bigger problem because as we have learned in the past weeks, they are old, all right? Abram is 85 years old at this point. Sarai is also old and they don't have any kids. And there's no hope on the horizon. She's not pregnant. It doesn't look good for them in stepping into this promise that God has given. And not only would this have been disappointing, you can imagine the disappointment of 10 years when somebody's old, you gotta imagine that they've been trying to have kids. Not only would there have been disappointment, there also would have been a lot of embarrassment or shame on the part of Abram and Sarah. Because for Abram, this would have been an identity issue for him. And the reason I say that is because the the name Abram literally means exalted father. Abram means exalted father. And so again, put yourself in his shoes in this story and just imagine him maybe meeting some travelers out on the road one day. And these travelers ask him and say, hey, hey, it's nice to meet you, what's your name? And Abram would say, well, I, I'm exalted father. And then, you, you gotta imagine, the, the travelers would say, oh, that's awesome, how many kids do you have? And Abram would have to say, well, I actually don't have any kids. And you got this awkward moment where the travelers don't really know how to respond to that. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that exalted father with no kids. Uh, but this would be embarrassing. This would be shameful because his identity, what he is called, does not match the situation that he is living in. And then for Sarai, this also would have been um, embarrassing, shameful for her, because you got to understand that in this time period, a, a woman's entire identity and the purpose of her existence would have been tied to the ability to have children. And so for, for Sarai, being old and childless would have represented a wasted and meaningless life in that context of culture okay so this is shameful this is embarrassing for her as well and this is what they are experiencing when all of a sudden uh sarai gets this crazy idea and here's where we're jumping into our story this morning genesis chapter 16 verse 1 says this now sarai abram's wife had borne him no children but she had an egyptian slave named hagar and hagar is going to be very important to this story and sarai said to abram the lord has kept me from having children go sleep with my slave, perhaps I can build a family through her. So get what's happening here. Sarai is saying God either isn't able or he's taking too long in coming through on his promise. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I've got this slave. So Abram, why don't you go sleep with her, have a son, and we're going to call this the son of the promise. Now this sounds like a crazy idea for us. Again, this is a difference in cultural context and time period. This actually would have been fairly common in their time period. Slaves would often have children for their masters, especially if the woman could not have kids because anything that the slave had would be considered property of the master. So get what's happening here. Sarah is actually not making a huge step with this decision. To her, she would look at everybody else in the world, what the culture was doing, and she's saying, Well, everybody else is doing it. Like we talked about last week, I'm just gonna take this little step. It would have been a little step for her. Now, we know this is sin, because anytime you're trusting yourself other than God, this is the sin of pride, but she doesn't register that in her mind. She's saying, ah, everybody else is doing it, culture is doing it, why can't I? And what we learned last week, one of the best points that I took out of last week is that God is counter-cultural, and he will work in opposition to worldly culture, and obviously this was not the way that God intended to fulfill this promise, and yet here Sarai is, matters in her own hands, saying, let's make this happen. Now, what is not going to surprise anybody, I don't think, I think most people are expecting this, is what Abram says in this next verse. Everybody can kinda see this coming. He says this in verse two, and Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Well, of course he did, he is a dude, and he is sitting here in this scenario, right, thinking, well, okay, okay, honey, whatever you want. I, I, I don't wanna do that, I would never do that, but if that's what you want, I'm here to serve. This is what Abraham's saying, I'm here to serve you however I can, right? And we can make a little light of that, we can laugh about that a little bit, but don't miss the significance of what hap- happens here, because for Abram, this is not just a physical decision. Again, this is an opportunity that he has, to step in and trust God in the way that God wants to fulfill a promise or to take matters into his own hands. And he chooses, like Sarai did, to take matters into his own hands. And he fails this test here. We could add it to the list that we saw at the beginning. Continue on in verse four. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And what we have underlying in the text here, there are indications that Hagar begins to kind of overstep her position as a slave, right? And in fact, she tries to increase her position, trying to come in between Abram and Sarai, trying to push Sarai out of the picture. She may say things like, hey, hey Abram, do you, do you wanna come feel the baby kick, right? Just put your hand right here and feel this. All the while she's looking over, making sure Sarai is seeing this happen. She may say something like, hey, Hey, Sarah, can, can you run to the store for me real quick and maybe grab some ice and some heating packs? You wouldn't know anything about this because you don't have kids, but it's hard to carry a child. Why don't, why don't you run to the store? Me and Abram over here are going to hang out. We're going to watch a movie. She starts to come in between them and tries to usurp Sarah as the position of this household. And so naturally, Sarah gets a little upset about this, and she goes to Abram, and she says this. This is super interesting. Verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. What she's saying here is, Abram, this is your fault. And what's Abram saying? Well, hold hold, hold on, hold on. Whose idea was this in the first place? Right, And so what we see happen is we start to see a little bit of blame shifting take place where neither one of them are taking the responsibility of their own sin, and they were equally a part of it, and they start to blame the other person. It's really reminiscent of, of the story of Adam and Eve, right, the beginning of Genesis where they eat of the fruit, and God comes to them and says, what did you do? And they say, well, Eve says, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. Right, And Adam says, oh, it's not my fault, it's the woman you gave me. Neither one are taking responsibility for their own sin. And we see this in multiple stories of the Bible. And the reason that we see this in multiple stories is because this is part of the human condition. This is who we are. And yet at the same time, it doesn't make it right. The Bible actually says a lot about this topic. Uh, in Proverbs verse nineteen three, chapter 19, 3, it says people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. Anybody ever been here? Anybody ever experience the result of your own foolish decision or your sin? Maybe sometimes both. And then you don't want to take responsibility for it and you kind of get angry at God. Why is this happening to me? God, this is your fault. This is what's happening here. They're not taking responsibility. And then Abram actually goes on a little bit further. He continues to not take responsibility. And he basically tells Sarai, hey, this is your fault. This was your idea. This is your slave. So you go deal with Hagar the way that you want to. Abram's saying, I'm taking my hands out of this, even though I caused a lot of it. He's saying, you deal with Hagar the way that you want. And the Bible says that Sarai begins to treat Hagar the slave very harshly so harshly that Hagar ends up fleeing from Abram and Sarai and she flees into the desert. We have this scene change take place where we see Hagar in the desert here. And what happens in this desert really could be a message in and of itself. And we don't have time to unpack a lot of the stuff that is in here, but the message of the desert is essentially this. It's essentially the message of grace because what happens is God comes and he meets Hagar in the desert in her situation The Bible says an angel of the Lord comes to her, and God really tells her two things in this exchange or conversation that he has with Hagar. And it's the same two things that we often will hear from God in certain situations of our lives as well. He offers her two things. He offers her hope, and he offers her redirection. Hope and redirection. And he actually starts with redirection. This is what it says in verse 9 where the angel of the Lord tells Hagar, go back to your mistress and submit to her. This is the redirection. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. So here Hagar is, she's running from Sarai, and this had to have been an extreme amount of mistreatment that she would have been experiencing because she's fleeing into the desert by herself. And you gotta understand the the implications of this decision. This would have been a high probability of death for her. Dangerous on a bunch of different levels, even culturally for a woman to be out alone in that culture would have been extremely dangerous. You've got the geography of the desert, which would have been dangerous, physically without much food, water. There is a high probability that she will die in the desert and yet what she's saying is I would rather risk death than be with Abram and Sarah and how they're treating me. So there's this extreme mistreatment and yet God says go back and not only go back but go back and submit. All right, put yourself again in this movie. You are now the character of Hagar. Imagine what you would feel hearing this from God. Go back and submit. For Hagar, this redirection would have felt like there is no hope, right? To Hagar, this would have felt like God doesn't see the bad things that are happening to me. God doesn't care about the bad things that are happening to me. Has anybody ever asked that question before? Right I have. And it is a valid question. And, and for me, I think one of the most terrifying questions that I could get asked as a pastor outside of, "Do you want to preach on Sunday?" Um, <laughs> it, it is this question of, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Anybody heard that before? Anybody ever asked that question before? Yeah. And at the end of the day, the only way that I know how to answer that question is this. We don't know. We don't know why God allows what he allows, yet we still choose to trust him that he is good in all things, but we don't know why God allows what he allows. And yet, when we ask that question, we're also assuming a couple of pretty major things. One, we are assuming that we are good people, right? When I ask the question, why does God allow something bad to happen to me, a good person, I am making the assumption that I am good people, which is a false assumption because the Bible says there's nobody that's good. No one is righteous, not even one. And what we actually are is we are sinners that deserve death. And so when you put that in perspective of the bad things in your life that are happening to you, are they actually bad compared to the death that we deserve. And that's the second thing that we're assuming. We are assuming in this question that the bad things that happen in our life are actually ultimately bad. Because what we're about to see is that if you can take yourself out of the movie, out of the story, just Hagar, if she could do that, if she could take herself to a 30,000 foot perspective, see the beginning and see the end, what we're about to see is that there is hope and there is blessing on the other side of this hardship that she is enduring. And yet, she doesn't have that ability to pull herself out of the story. So what she is feeling in this moment is a lack of understanding at what God is telling her. A lack of understanding at what God is doing. And here's the deal. If she chooses to stay there, she will most likely die in the desert. And for us in our lives, it's very similar. If we choose to stay in the painful circumstances, the not understanding what God is doing, if we can't get our head up at some point, It's not bad to experience or feel those things, but we can't stay there because if we stay there, we aren't going to be able to experience the hope and the blessing that is on the other side of obedience. And so this is the redirection that we see happen with Hagar, but also here's the hope. The angel continues on in verse 10. and says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now this is very similar to the promise that god made abram right i'm going to increase your descendants they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky very similar and the angel of the lord also said to her you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son you shall name him ishmael for the lord has heard of your misery this is a really cool thing because the name ishmael actually means the lord hears so get what god is doing here he meets hagar in the desert, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her not understanding what has taken place. And he's saying, hey, I know that you think I'm not there. I know that you think that I can't see you, that I can't hear you, but I want you to name your son Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. And so now every time she calls out her son's name, Ishmael, she's going to be reminded of this moment in the desert where God showed up. In the midst of her pain, in the midst of her hurt, in the midst of her lack of understanding, she's going to remember God was actually there. What's also cool about this in the story, she actually then turns around and, and she gives a name to God. This is the first time in the entire Bible that somebody names God. And she says, I'm going to call you El Roy, which means the God who sees. So she recognizes in this place, hey, God's actually here and I'm gonna name you and I'm gonna remember the fact that God was with me and he sees. And this is the hope for Hagar, right? God just told her she's gonna have a son. Her descendants are going to increase. And remember why this would be such a big deal for her because remember how we talked about Sarai and how having no kids would have you know, represented a wasted and meaningless life? Well here, Hagar's got a son. She's got kids now. She is going to be able to claim a blessing that again was very similar to the promise that God made Abram. And you might be tempted to think right here that this is the fulfillment of the promise that God understands that Abram screwed up. He took matters into his own hands. And now there's going to be this son Ishmael. You might think, well, God is going to make Ishmael the son of the promise. yet we're not going to see that. But you gotta imagine Abram thinks this as well. Abram thinks, man, I did it. We're gonna have this son. And here's the end of the story. This is where we're gonna wrap up for today. Hagar listens to God. And she goes back to Sarai and Abram. And Ishmael's is born. And Abram loves his son, Ishmael. He raises him. And years go by, actually 13 years go by. The Bible says that Ishmael is 13 and Abram is 99 years old. Which if you pause right there, that does not seem like much of a blessing. Being 99 years old and raising a 13 year old kid. For us, that would not feel like a blessing. And yet, you got to imagine for Abram, this would have been an incredible blessing for him. He is now walking in what he thinks is the fulfillment of the promise. What he has waited for for so long is finally here. And then God does something really interesting. In Genesis chapter 17, when Abram is 99 years old, God appears to him again. And he says a couple of things in this conversation that he has with Abram. One, he reminds Abram of the promise that he made. I'm gonna increase your descendants. You're gonna have a son. I'm gonna cause a nation to come out of you. And Abraham's probably thinking, you don't have to remind me of this. I am living this, it's right here, it's Ishmael. And yet God says, no, I'm not talking about Ishmael. He says, I'm gonna cause you to have another son. This time, the way it was supposed to happen in the first place with your wife, Sarai. And God actually changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which gives her, it's representing a new start, a blank slate, another opportunity for her to trust. He says, you're going to have a son named Isaac, and I am going to fulfill my promise to you through your son Isaac. And then he does something really interesting. This is the point of the story where Abram's name gets changed. And God says, you are no longer going to be known as Abram, which, remember, means exalted father. He said, now you're going to be known as Abraham, which means father of nations or father of many And guys, I want you to lean in right here because this is the most powerful point of the story and something that I missed every single time I read this. Because every time before, when I would read this story, I would think this has to be an incredible experience for Abraham. This name change would have been, would have felt awesome for him. He's getting upgraded. He's now being called father of many. This would have felt like another blessing for him. And yet I don't believe that it actually would have felt that way actually think that for Abram, this would have felt like the opposite of a blessing. And here's why. You remember back when Abram was called Abram and his name was Exalted Father. You remember the travelers on the road he would meet and they would say, how many kids do you have? And he would say, I, I don't have any kids, but my name is Exalted Father. Remember how embarrassing and shameful that would have felt for him? Well, now Abram has a son and his son is Ishmael and he is living in what he thinks is a good situation. And so now when he meets those travelers on the road and they say, Hey, what's your name? He can say with pride, my name is exalted father. And here's my son, here's my son Ishmael. This is no longer shameful for him. He's saying, man, I'm living in the promise. And yet God comes to him and says, Hey, I'm going to change your name. You're not going to be known as exalted father anymore. Instead you're going to be father of many. Now father of many is a great name for a father who has many kids. But how many kids does Abram have? He's got one. So don't miss what God is doing here. In this renaming of Abram to Abraham, he is bringing full circle, Abraham back around to the same opportunity he had 13 years ago with Hagar. And he's saying, what are you gonna do with this opportunity? Are you gonna trust this time? or are you going to take matters into your own hands? Because here Abraham is, and once again, his identity, what he is being called, does not match the situation of his life. And God's saying, are you gonna trust me now? At one point you believed, and it was credited to you as righteousness, but are you gonna trust now? And the end of the story is, Abram does choose to trust, and he does the right thing this time. And we see, the Bible says a year later, his son Isaac was born and this is how we see God fulfill his promise that he makes because if you look at the the genealogy of Isaac we see the Israelites come out of the line of Isaac who was the son of the promise not Ishmael who was the son of the flesh and that's the story that's the movie and yet what is the lesson what's the lesson in the story I think we could talk about a lot of things there's so many things that you could draw out of here you could talk about experiencing the difference between where god has called you or who god has called you to be and where you're currently at you could talk about that journey we could talk about the lesson that hagar experienced in the desert where she doesn't understand what it is that she's experiencing you could talk about god doing things in ways that you don't expect you could talk about how long it takes god sometimes to fulfill a promise and how he doesn't often work on your timetable. You could talk about the fact that God will often bring us back around and give us the same test that we fail in the past. And say, are you gonna trust me now? But here's the ultimate lesson for today. And the lesson is another question. Who's the hero of the story? Who's the hero of this story? Who's the hero of your story? The answer is it's the same. Because the hero of this story is not Abram or Sarai, naturally, they screwed up, right? It's not Hagar, the hero isn't Ishmael or even Isaac. The hero of this story is God who gave grace where there was mistakes. He also gave truth and redirection and it ultimately culminated in the person of Jesus. Because again, if you fast forward this story to the New Testament where Jesus hits the scene, you're gonna see that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and Isaac, not Abraham and Ishmael, the son of the promise. And that promise extended beyond Abraham. And that promise extends to us, and it's the promise of life. The Bible says that Jesus came so that we might have life and have it to the full. And so here's the question for you this morning. Has there ever been a moment in your life that you have trusted Jesus with your life? Has there been a moment that you have turned over ownership of your life to Jesus, the hero of this story? And if you haven't, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that this morning. So we're gonna close down for today. If everybody could bow their heads, close their eyes, I wanna ask that question. Has there been a moment that you have committed ownership of your life to God? The Bible says that there's only two things that you have to do. You've gotta believe in your heart that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the dead. You gotta confess with your mouth that he's Lord. So I wanna lead you in a prayer this morning, and you can pray this silently, but pray it to Jesus. And just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Enough that you would come down to earth and meet me like you met Hagar in the desert. Thank you for dying on a cross for my sins, raising to life so that I could be raised to life. Say, so today I choose to make you my Lord. I pray that you would help me to live every day the best I know how, to follow after you. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, this is the best decision of your life that you will ever make. And we'd love to know about that. We'd love to pray for you. We're gonna tell you how we can help in next steps in just a second. But if you do this, if you prayed that prayer this morning and you wanna mark this in your mind as today, July 4th, 2021, this is the day I committed my life to Christ. On the count of three, nobody's looking around. No guilt, shame here. On the count of three, just shoot your hand up in the air. One, two, three. If you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand. Again, this is the greatest decision that you will ever make. And our family tradition around here is that as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and say, Welcome home. Welcome home.